Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about God's relationship to Israel and what we can learn from it. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. The fact that you're listening to this tells me that you are probably either interested in our church or desire content that helps you grow in your relationship with God. And if these things are true for you, either one of them, subscribing to our YouTube channel is worth your time. We post content that doesn't really work in audio form, so you won't hear it here. And recently I've been doing these videos I call the Bible Breakdown, where I use my iPad to like write on a Bible passage that I preached on the previous Sunday, and I just kind of explain some of the things that I found interesting from it. The one connected to this sermon will go out in a couple of days. Also, one of our pastors has recently done a series called Apologetics for the 21st Century. It has been super helpful in clarifying really why it is logical to be a Christian and how we can show others that in a way that is actually valuable to them. The Bible Breakdown and this course are both available on YouTube, so again, I invite you to subscribe. You can do that by going to youtube.com slash creekside2 or by searching for us on YouTube, Creekside Bible Church. One more time, it's youtube.com slash creekside2. I hope you'll do it. Again, thank you for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon. I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. I, uh, I grew up in a, in a house uh, where my great-grandma lived with us, and you've heard me talk about her before and her influence on my life. And, and one of the things about my great-grandma is that she, she loved Israel and had had the opportunity to visit when she was younger and, and had just you know a, a great respect for really all things uh, Israeli and all things Jewish. And uh, basically her attitude was, if, if it was Israel, it was good. That's how my great-grandma really thought about things. I thought about, you know, all the things she had, some that had been passed down to me. One of my, one of my favorite things, actually, that I own, I think, is a, uh, is a nativity scene that was carved in Israel that she brought home, and somehow that's been passed down to me. I didn't have any of that stuff readily handy, but, uh, but I have this rock that I keep that was given to me from Mike. Hi, Mike, out there. Uh, and Mike Bernstein went to Israel gave me this rock, says Mount of Olives, Israel, on the bottom of it. And, and it's special to me in large part because it's from Israel. And uh, for, you know, for those of us that are Christians, you know, know the Bible, uh, you know, we think, well, Jesus could have touched this rock. I don't know how old this rock is, obviously, but, you know, Jesus could have touched this rock. And, and, and we look at, at really our history as Christians, and it's the history of, of Israel. And, uh, and, and, now we begin this sermon series, Descendants, and it really is in large part about the place of Israel in God's salvation history. And, and, and this series, you see it in the tagline, is about Israel, mercy, and us in Romans 9 through 11. And, and I know that as I say that, you know, most of you didn't show up, didn't turn on your internet this morning thinking, I really want to hear a sermon about the place of Israel in salvation history. And, and before you, you shut it off or try to sneak out the door, which will be really hard in this room, uh, before you do that, I just want you to know that I think there is a ton of important application. And while, while we're going to really study the, you know, Israel's place in 
in Christianity, uh, we also are going to see some incredible truths for us. And I think it's also important just to answer the question, like, do rocks from Israel, I mean, like, is there a reason that people like my great-grandma valued the place of Israel and Jewish people so highly, and, and should we follow suit, or are we wrong in doing that? And, and, and some of these questions, maybe you never asked them, but they're important questions. I mean, what is the place of Israel? How, how you know, should we respond to the nation of Israel? In some ways, this is kind of like a political thing these days, it seems. It's become a political kind of line in the sand for many people. On one side, you say America should support Israel, and that comes from, oftentimes, Christians and their value placed on, on Jews because of their place in salvation history. And on the other side, you say, have people say, well, why, why are they more special than anybody else? And, and so, in, in some ways, this series is just helpful and, you know, I hope, helping you figure out, well, how do I view the place of Israel, not just in the history of salvation, but, you know, now and in, in, in God's plan now, how do I view them and then, and then obviously, I think we can just see, uh, hopefully anyway, we'll see some things that we can learn just about how God interacts with people and his people and how God's promises are fulfilled and all of those kinds of things. And, and today we see one of those. And so hopefully I haven't turned it off yet, but today we're going to see uh, this, this thing that, that I think is true for Americans uh, oftentimes uh, and it was true for the Israelites, and Paul is going to speak into it. And, and I think that, that a lot of people, Christian or not Christian, think that people become Christians in, in large part because of something special about them. And, and they think that, that if you become a Christian, just get it, Hudson, just come on, come on, come on, come on, get up here. Um, they think that, that they become Christians or became Christians because of something special in them. And likewise, I think there's people outside of Christianity that think they lack whatever that special something is. And, and in some ways, I think it's, it's simply nationality. But in other ways, I think that people think, you know, I was born into a Christian home and either that made me a Christian or it's the reason I, I didn't become a Christian is because that's just not how I, how I grew up. And, and what we're going to see in our passage today really speaks into that. And, and the way that it does is, is by saying, I think, this. This is uh, my line. Ethnicity does not define authenticity of one's relationship with God. Ethnicity does not define authenticity when it comes to one's relationship with God. And we're going to see that in our passage today. Before we get there, if you were around for our last series, you already know this, but I want to remind you. And if you weren't, then you, then you, you need to know this because there's this, man, this really contrasting feel that takes place in this passage. At the end of Romans 8, we, we talked about how we were conquerors uh, and in Christ. And that was the whole series. Our whole series was called Conquerors. And, and everything that we've studied kind of leading up to this the last several weeks, it's like so happy and joyful and we have victory. That's what we've been talking about for week after week after week. We have victory over all of these things in Christ that we could not have victory in and over apart from Christ. And so Paul has given us this just big ending. You are more than conquerors through Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And then we read, we read this. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people 
of Israel. Wow. I mean, like from mountaintop to just falling off the mountain is almost how this feels. If you were reading this letter, you're like, I'm more than a conqueror. Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. And then Paul says, basically, I wish that I could be damned so that more Israelites would be saved, so that more Israelites would be conquerors like I know I am, so that more Israelites would be victorious like I know that we are who are in Christ. Now, I want to just pause here and say I think it's important to just note something that we've talked about in the series, but maybe not enough, uh, and that is that all that we've read to this point really has a little bit always in the book of Romans, a little bit in the background is the relationship between Jew and Gentile in Christ. And as you move later in the book, at the end of the book, you're going to see Paul call for, call for unity between Jew and Gentile in Christ in Romans 14 and 15. But everything that we've read, the whole gospel is, is you know, kind of has the backdrop, the flavor of Paul's dealings with the relationship between Jew and Gentile and, and what that means for their salvation and, and their relationship to one another. And so some people would say like Romans 9 through 11, like three chapters, it's almost like a parenthetical to really the meat of this book. But, but I think that would be a misreading of Romans 9 through 11 because I think it deals with something that Paul has been hinting at, alluding to, kind of talking about, and that is, that is this kind of interesting tension between, you know, what the Jews experienced <coughs> for, for all the time that we call the Old Testament, and then, and then Christ shows up, and, and now is it just that they've been left behind? Do those promises not matter to them anymore? Do they have no special place in God's heart anymore? There's this tension, right? And Paul's been hitting on the law pretty hard. Like, it doesn't save you. It points out sin. He's made all these negative comments about the law. He's kind of shown that when it comes to salvation and being forgiven of sin, being Jewish does not matter for that. What matters is a relationship with Christ. And so now he really, I mean, he's kind of set it up to the point where it's like, well, I better say something, you know, more specific and more clear because I've created this, this difficult thing for all of my Jewish brethren, which again, it's important to say Paul is Jewish. And so he really feels a personal need to say something to his family, right? Like, hey, what's cousin Bob going to think about this letter? He needs to say something about it. The New International Commentary on the New Testament says, Paul is not simply using Israel to illustrate a theological point, such as predestination or righteousness of God. He is talking about Israel herself as he wrestles with the implications of the gospel for God's chosen people of the Old Testament. Now, again, pause right there. Uh, that's a really important idea because... All I know of Romans 9 through 11 before studying uh, was kind of that it is this theologically tricky section of Romans. And it's the part I was most dreading preaching about because of that. I mean, uh, if, if you know anything about the debate between Calvinists and not Calvinists, so much of it centers on how you understand Romans 9 specifically. And because of that, and I think this is true of so much that we've looked at in the book of Romans, it's been really eye-opening for me, so much of Romans 
you know, contains these verses that people just grab onto and then, and then start proving their theology without ever asking, what is the original intent, which is how we should always read the Bible, what is the original intent of the author, Paul in this case, as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit? And it's so easy, even as we move forward today, to just jump to the theological conclusions, like the stuff that ends up in systematic theology books, without remembering The original intent is for Paul to answer the question, what is Israel's place in God's story given that the law is not the way that you are saved and that we now have been grafted in, as he'll say, you know, in couple of chapters, grafted into kind of the promises that God has made for the Israelite people by placing ourselves in Christ through faith. So keep that in mind. This is answering the question about, you know, the place of Israel. That's really important. Now, I also say that Paul is, is defending himself here because, because there is a, you know, just a view all around Paul that he is anti-Jewish, that he is anti-Israel. And uh, it's funny because he's Jewish, but but there, I mean, people are looking at him and, and the way he's talking about the law and the way that he's showing that Gentiles can be brought into uh, a relationship with God and, and take part in so many of the Israelites' promises. And, and, and they're going, well, this guy's just anti-Jewish. And Paul here, he really needs to make sure that, that people understand that he is not anti-Jewish. Uh, and, and, and doing this, Paul, you know, he's going to bring up some theological things and stuff like that. But, but he begins in a really just heartfelt place. He makes this incredibly bold, I think scary, statement. He says, I... It says, I would be damned. And I mean that in a literal sense, like condemned to hell. I would be damned if it meant that I could see more Israelites become conquerors like I am. Now, this, this demonstrates, obviously Paul knows that there's no trade to be made, right? Like we can't trade our lives for their lives. Jesus was able to die for people's sins, but we can't be condemned for people's sins. And so this is, you know, Paul musing more than, than making a statement about theology, but, but it's an important one nonetheless, right? Because it demonstrates how incredibly passionate he is about seeing the people that he loves, his nation, embrace Jesus as their savior. And I just want to ask this question because as you move into Romans 9, it's, man, so easy to jump straight to the theological nuances and argue. That's how I've used Romans 9 my whole life is arguing. Uh, But let's just ask the question, how desperate are we to see the people we love embrace Jesus? How passionate are we about seeing those we love be conquerors in Christ? Because I think it falls far short of, of Paul's declaration that he would be damned for eternity to see more Jewish people become Christians. We, we just, I mean, we, <laughs> we're not even willing to, you know, be a little bit embarrassed or, or, or face rejection that they might, you know, not like that we're talking to them about Jesus. Or we're not willing to have people say no to us and, and invite them to church. I mean, we're so far away from this. We, we would much rather just argue about the theological nuances of Romans 9 than, than be embarrassed or hurt or broken to see other people 
engage, love, accept Jesus as their Savior. And so I think the first thing that Romans 9 needs to do right as Paul begins is just convict us a little bit, if we could all be a little bit convicted, that we should be more passionate about seeing the people we love except Jesus. I mean, are you willing to sacrifice even your comfort or your your reputation to see people you love know Jesus as their Savior? Are you? I hope that you are, but I fear that we're not. And here's as we think about that, I mean, we must celebrate our victories in Jesus and also at the same time lament the lostness of others. And sometimes I think we like choose one of those two things, right? I know for me, I either can celebrate how great it is to be a Christian or be sad about the people who don't know Christ. And here at the end of Romans 8, beginning Romans 9, we see these two things clash. And as if Paul wants us to remember that while we celebrate the victories we have in Christ, we also must lament the lostness of those who don't know Christ, who have not become Christians. And everything we read from here, Romans 9 through 11, must be read in light of the fact that Paul loves passionately his Jewish brethren. He is passionate about seeing them become Christians. It all must be read in that light. And here's what Paul says next. Theirs is the adoption of sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. So Paul already in the book of Romans has mentioned some of the benefits of being Jewish, and now he, he just kind of iterates those things. He says that they were God's people, they had God's presence, they were given the law, they had temple worship and its practices, they had the promises, they have the patriarchs, and by the way, Jesus was Jewish, which is a big deal, right? I mean, they ushered in the lineage of Jesus himself. I just want to pause here. I think it's really, really important to say, because sometimes we do this. Sometimes this is how we think about the role of Israelites. Uh, there are a group of people, and Paul could have done this, who would just say, who would just say that Israel has been replaced by Christians, that all of the promises of the Old Testament are replaced by Christians. On the flip side, you, you have people who, who seemingly ignore everything that's been said already in the book of Romans, who, who just say, well, all the promises of the Old Testament are specifically for Israel, and, and as Christians, we may have new promises, but, but those promises were for them, and, and then these promises are for us. And it seems, I'm, I don't know if I have a good answer for you on how we handle this, but it seems like Paul wouldn't be comfortable with either of those things. Because Paul has clearly said, Look, these promises that were made by the prophets of the Old Testament, those apply to Christians. But now he comes along and he doesn't just say, yeah, and by the way, Christians have replaced Israel. He actually, at the beginning, he elevates the place of Israel once again, and then he moves on from there. I mean, I think we have a tendency to just want, we want things in nice little neat categories and Paul in this passage does not seem comfortable with putting people in nice little neat categories especially the place of Israel in God's story salvation history and so Paul you'll see here he's gonna he's gonna say look he did he says like they have a special place but also that special place does not guarantee salvation and Christians have so many of the promises that, that 
God gave in the Old Testament. We'll try to put that together a little more as we move forward. But first, pay attention to the end of verse 5. It appears that Paul calls Jesus God. uh, Kind of a big deal. And there's some debate about this. And the debate comes down to really the fact that Greek, often doesn't have any punctuation. It's pretty much what this comes down to. And so you're left wondering if Paul meant to put a, you know, and he he didn't mean to put anything because he was writing it, but like, would he have put a comma or a period in between these two things? And, And here's the deal. I think the better evidence points to Paul calling Jesus God here. And on top of that, I think that if Paul was really concerned with, with, you know, the, the idea that he might be calling Jesus God, then he surely wouldn't have written the sentence this way in the beginning. And, and Paul, you know, in Titus 2.13 says, we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, it seems that Paul calls Jesus God. And, uh, and I think this is important to bring up this morning for a couple of reasons. One, because as Christians, we believe that Jesus is God. Jesus was fully God and fully man. When Jesus walked the earth, he was fully God and fully man. He remains that to this day. And so uh, that is something that we believe as Christians. But what makes it even more interesting here, at the end of this passage, in in the middle of this passage, I guess, is that Paul is, is talking about Israel. And then he says this thing that would have been the absolute hardest thing for any Israelite non-Christian to accept. He just like draws this line in the sand. He's like, hey, Israel has a great place, right? I mean, look at all this stuff that God gave them. But let's be super clear here. Jesus is God. Now, Jesus said this when he walked the earth and it's, it's you know, for, for a lot of Jewish people, it was the very thing that, made it so that they couldn't accept him as their Messiah. I mean, John 8, 58 and 59, for very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, a lot of people would say that's not a reference to the I am of the Old Testament, but man, the Jews surely didn't think that because it says this next, as they picked up at this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple ground. Like these Jewish people were like, Jesus just called himself God for crying out loud. And, and that, in their mind, is blasphemous. And so we need to kill him because blasphemy is punishable by death. It is very important, whether you're a Jewish person or a Gentile person, it is very important that you ask the question, who is Jesus? And the answer to that question for Christians must include that he is God in flesh who came to save sinners. Paul continues, it is not as though God's word has failed, had failed. For not, this is so interesting, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. Is where it starts to get a little little more difficult here. And uh, when I first read this, the way that I read it was was that Paul was saying, and this is probably because of the background and seeing this as a, you know argumentation and all that, but the way that I first read this was that I assumed that Paul was saying that it meant Christians are also part of Israel. And maybe you read it and you read it that way too. It says, all who are descended from Israel, uh, sorry, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And, and so in my head, as soon as I read that, I was like, well, that means I'm included in Israel and the promises of Israel. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is to say, not all Jewish people are Israel. It's another way of saying it. Listen to what Douglas Moo says in his great commentary. He says, his point is not, it is not only those who are of Israel that are of Israel, 
but rather it is not all those who are of Israel that are of Israel. Do you see the distinction there? His point is not to say people you know, outside of Israel are Israel. His point is to say not everybody who's in Israel is Israel. That's what Paul is trying to say here. And that is proved as he moves through this passage of scripture. Now, again, Paul could have just said Christians replace Israel, but he doesn't. And he could have said, well, Israel, you know, the nation, that's what makes you blessed, but he doesn't. He's trying to find this middle ground that shows the importance of Israel, but also shows, as he'll say at the end, that Christians in some ways have been grafted into that, and and all of it depends on you becoming a person who accepts Jesus as your savior. Paul's shown that promises, again, of Israel apply to Christians, but now he wants to show that there is a place for Israel. But it isn't just your blood. It isn't just your nationality. It isn't just the country you were born in. It is something else that makes that important. Paul wants to show the unity of the Old and New Testament. And he doesn't want Gentiles to be arrogant and act like Israel is no longer important. Uh, He'll really talk about this later on in Romans 11 where he says this in verse 17, if some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, and then he goes on. But his point is, look, if salvation is an olive root, right? Like you as Gentiles have been grafted in, right? And so don't be arrogant about it because you're still coming from Israel and the things that God did for Israel. Okay, so all that, I know that was confusing. Hopefully you understood any of that right there. But listen to where he moves next because it also confusing, but really helps clarify his point. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let me start at the end. That's a very good place to start, I think, when it comes to this passage, because if you were paying attention to anything I just said, you're like, did that just say God hated somebody, right? It's a very difficult passage of scripture to deal with. In fact, um, I had the opportunity to meet John MacArthur, who, who loves this passage of Scripture, maybe more than any other. Uh, he loves this passage of Scripture, and I went up to him after the church service, because you can ask him questions as part of uh, what they do at their church. And this is what I asked him about, because I was really curious. Like, did John MacArthur, who, who really has you know, some connections to this passage and what it means theologically, does he think God hates people? And, and, and he doesn't. Uh, and so, uh, and I don't either. I don't think this means that God's, God hates people. And you're like, well, it says that. Are you, do you not believe the Bible, Chad? How dare you not believe the Bible? But here's the deal. Uh, there are, are several things that you need to understand about this uh, in order to understand why it doesn't seem to suggest God hates people. First, it's an idiom of comparison. It's an idiom, right? And so uh, it's not meant to be taken in a literal sense. It's meant to show a comparison between two people. In fact, I don't think it's meant to show the difference between two people. I actually think it's meant to show the difference between God's relationship to two types of people. Uh, it's pretty widely accepted amongst all types of theological uh, scholars that, that when it says 
here, Jacob and Esau, it's actually referring to their lineages and not them as individuals. Uh, this is a quote from the book of Malachi, and in Malachi, Malachi is not talking them as people, individuals. He's talking about people groups. And, and furthermore, hated is clearly the opposite of loved in this passage, and loved clearly is a reference to being chosen. And so it appears that when it says hated here, it's more of a reference to not chosen than it is uh, to you know, hate in some type of feeling way that we think of the word hate. And on top of that, on top of all of that, as I've told you before, Hebrew very well may be the worst language in all of existence because words can mean 55 different things and you need to know them on your tests and I didn't. And so that was my problem in Hebrew class. And so Hebrew just allows for like words to be on this giant spectrum and you get a pick what the author actually meant. It's really awful. Uh, it's really, I do not like the language. I love Greek. It makes sense. It's better than English. But Hebrew, I would take English in any day. And so one of the meanings for hated can simply be the idea of rejection. God rejected or didn't choose them. All that to say, God does not hate individuals. I do not think there is any evidence scripturally that God looks down at certain people and says, I hate them. This is about the idea of chosen and not chosen. And that's really Paul's point in this whole passage. His whole point is that, frankly, not every person who descends from Israel or Abraham is chosen. That's what he's getting at here. That's what he's talking about here. He's responding again to the idea that he is not anti-Israel, but at the same time, he is showing quite clearly that Jews should not, ought not think that they are saved simply because of their race. He'll continue this idea all the way through verse 20. What Paul is saying is that it has always been about grace and not ethnic identity. People's relationship to God has always been based on, their, on God's grace and not their race, as N.T. Wright says it. What counts is not race, but grace. What counts is not race, but grace. And how does he explain this here? He's like, hey, look, there's a bunch of promises, if you don't know, made to Abraham, okay? And made to Abraham's descendants, Abraham had two children, and those promises only applied to one of them. And then you go, well, they had different moms, right? That would be our argument. And so he goes down to the next line, and he says, hey, there was two twins in the same lineage, right? And there's a bunch of promises made to their dad about his descendants, and those promises only applied to one of them, even though they had the same dad and the same mom. And Paul's point is so simple, right? Because it can be all theologically nuanced and we can take this and talk about Calvinism and election, all those things. But his, at the very heart, this is his intended point. It is not about your ethnic identity. It is about God's grace in your life. Your ethnicity does not, does not prove the authenticity of your relationship with God. Now, look, for Jewish people, then and now, if you ever talk to a Jewish person, you ask them what makes them saved. Ask them. Say, hey, what saves you, you know, for like eternity? You know what they're pretty much going to tell you? They're not going to say it probably this outright, but they're pretty much going to tell you my nationality. I'm Jewish God loves me. It's always been that way, and it always will that be that way. And they might start telling you stories about how God has provided for them, and so when they die, whatever happens, they can trust God. And Paul comes along here and says, sorry, that's not the way this works. 
There's plenty of promises made to Jewish people, and it's not as though God has got, gotten rid of those promises or gone back on those promises or simply just replaced those promises and given them to Christians. From the very beginning when those promises were made, from the first child after those promises were made was born, right down through the line, it has always been about the grace of God and not the race of the people because there were plenty of ethnic Jews that did not fall into the category of these promises being made to them. That's what Paul is saying. That is the intent of the author here. And you can extend that out and you begin to ask these big questions about, you know, again, it comes down to the order of salvation. Like, who is it that, that in the Christian life, who is it that gets chosen and doesn't get chosen? And, and does this, because God chose them before anybody was, before they were even born and had done nothing good or bad. I mean, God chose them before that. And so then the question becomes, well, does that mean that's how God elects us or is that not how does it not work that way and and you know is this just about the nation of israel or does this apply to us as individual christians you know what i'm going to let you debate that on your own because i want i want you to understand the point the point here is that salvation has never been based on race or ethnicity it has always been based on god's grace that leads to him calling people into a relationship with him Paul's point is not to talk about who gets called and who doesn't get called in this passage. That's not the intent of the author. It may be an extension. Again, that can be debated, but it's not the main point. The main point is to say you're not saved through your race. You are saved through grace that leads to God calling you into a relationship with him. Now, he says this big line, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not, not by works, but by him who calls. Earlier in the book of Romans, Paul contrasted two things, works and grace. And here he con contrasts works and calling, right? And, and what's so clear, what Paul is getting at is, is salvation is not about who you are or what you have done. It is about the gracious calling of God in your life. That's it. That's the point here. And, and so we come all the way back. I mean, and first, let's answer the question, does Israel have a special place in God's salvation history? Absolutely. And those promises stand for them as long as they embrace the grace of God in their lives through the gift of their Messiah, Jesus. And those promises, they've not gone away. They haven't been replaced. We will see we've been grafted in as Christians, but those promises are still for the chosen, called, grace-filled Jewish people, the Israelites, uh, and we just get to be a part of it. That's what Paul is getting at here. And so does, does Israel have a special place? Absolutely. But does being an Israelite mean that you're saved? Absolutely not. That's what Paul is saying here. Uh, and I would add, and I think this is so important, while being an Israelite does not guarantee your salvation, neither does being born in America, being born in a Christian home, uh, going to church all the time, uh, being a decent person, uh, you know, marking the box on the census every however many years that says you're a Christian. None of these things, none of these things are birthrights for salvation. That's kind of Paul's, I think, that's the real extension of application. It has nothing, salvation has nothing to do with birthright. You are not born in such a way that you get to have a relationship with God. You get a relationship with God as he calls you into his kingdom by the grace that came through Jesus' death 
on a cross for our sins and resurrection. And if you want all of the victories that were described in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, you can't, you can't get them by going, oh, my, my parents were Christians. And, and that's, you, you might be the person, people answer the question, are you a Christian that way? Oh, yeah, I grew up in a Christian home. We went to mass sometimes. You know, like, have you ever, I mean, if you're a Christian, you've probably heard that response. People say that. Are you a Christian? Oh, I go to church, yeah. These are not the same question. And that's at the heart of Paul here. Like, are you a Christian? Is, is saying, have you placed your faith in Jesus? Have you placed your faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross? And so, let me just finish by saying, if you're Jewish, you need to become a Christian so that you can embrace the promises that God wants you to have fulfilled in your life. That's the reality. If you're Jewish, become a Christian. If you're not a Christian, but you're relying on being a decent person or going to church or having a Christian family or knowing a few Christians or whatever, become a Christian because your ethnicity or your, you know, the home you grew up in or the few times you went to church does not define the authenticity of your relationship with God. Only faith in Jesus does. And for those of us who are Christians, I think there's a point here too. We can be kind of arrogant, I think, about like, well, I don't know, I I, I just, we just feel like, like there was something unique or special about us that, that allowed for us, you know, and not the guy down the road with the drug addiction or the person who's made too many bad choices or has rejected God outright. We could be arrogant in thinking, well, look, I'm in. And, and I think what Paul says to us here is, <laughs> has nothing to do with you or who you are or what you've done. It's always been about God's race and calling on your life. And so if you're a Christian, there's no place for arrogance. You are no better than you know, the guy that's rejected God a million times and isn't a Christian. Uh, you've just embraced the calling of God in your life and his gracious gift on the cross. And so there's, we should, but for the grace of God, there go I, as the old idiom states. We should look at every person outside of Christ and think, that absolutely could be me apart from God's grace and calling in my life. And we should love them and root for them to embrace the promises of God through a relationship with Jesus. Ethnicity or you know anything else that isn't faith does not define authenticity of one's relationship with God.